Amen. All right, so we're going to talk about wealth this morning. And so the Bible has a lot to say about wealth and money and all kinds of things of that nature. Uh, Jesus taught on it more than almost anything else. And every one of us here interacts with it. Every one of us here is influenced by or tempted by our relative wealth. Whether we think we have too much, if there's anyone who thinks that, or if we're constantly consumed with not having enough, or how do we hold on to what do we have, how do we maximize what we have. And every one of us here has something practical to learn from the book of Proverbs uh, on the subject. That's why we'll spend two weeks on it. And so my goal here this morning, uh, and next week as well, is to, for you to know what's contained in Proverbs, how, how Solomon in his wisdom uh, deals with money and, and the other writers of Proverbs, um, but also to be able to recall those things and to apply them, to have a biblical worldview or mindset about your stuff. Because Proverbs has a lot to uh, counsel us on, uh, and there's a lot of counsel we can get in here from or for our financial decisions, our financial outlook, because we are born foolish. And our default mode is to be stupid with our money, as the psalmist said. And so we need godly counsel, and uh, Proverbs is one of the best sources for that. But more importantly than anything, I want your heart to be in the right place. This is not just a how-to guide on, on how to uh, make money the Christian way. This is a examination of our heart. Do our minds know these things, but what does our heart love? What do we long after? What do we hold on to? And so before we begin, as often as we're going through a book like Proverbs, we have to consider what the original audience understood when certain words were mentioned. So for us, when we think of wealth, we think of money. The idea of, of money is so common for us. But coins, money, didn't, was not around during the writing of Proverbs. The, the Persians were the ones who invented the monetary system somewhere between the 6th and the, and the 4th century B.C. And so the monetary coins didn't even appear until later in the Old Testament period. So when this audience hears wealth, when they hear profit, they are an agrarian culture. And so their society uh, was built on the bartering system and an exchange of goods and, and, and services and so um, your concern in those days was not do I have enough money in the bank, but do we have enough food to eat? And the wealthy guy was not the one with stocks and bonds and mutual funds. He was the guy with a lot of sheep, a lot of cattle, fields and wine and uh, milk and honey galore. And so that's why when God brings his people into the land of Canaan, he said, I'm going to give you a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Wine that you, out of vineyards you didn't plant, and grain out of fields you didn't plant. And so, uh, there, so that's what wealth is um, described as here. One of the resources I've been recommending good books, a very good book on this is Tremper Longman's How to Read Proverbs. Uh, it's a great introductory, uh, it's been helpful for me, but it's also great if you're, if you're enjoying our study in Proverbs and uh, want to know some kind of like, hermeneutical tools, like how do I read Proverbs for all of its benefit? Uh, Trumper Longman's How to Read Proverbs is really good. Um, but the other thing I want you to see here that when we think about wealth, I think the church has often erred more on one side or the other. The one side being the prosperity gospel that says money equals blessing from God. And then probably the reaction to the prosperity gospel that, that or the, the, the kind of... Um, um, what am I looking for here? Kind of the monastic kind of view that, that we're just going to deny all material possessions and that's what honors God. But it's actually a good thing to pray for wealth. David does. And God gives good gifts. He's the giver of every good gift. So I want to read one of these prayers from David in Psalm 144. Look what, what David prays here for his family. This is a good, uh, uh, and this psalm, is praying to his rock. He gives God credit for all things, but look what he petitions God for. This is Psalm 144, verse 12. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown. He wants healthy children. 
Our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and tens of thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no misshape or, or failure in bearing, mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. You can read here, because blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. We can rejoice in wealth and good things. We live in a wealthy country. Praise the Lord for that. We can thank him for that. He has put us here. He and his sovereignty knows where we are and knows what we have. But the question here is, what do we do with the wealth that he's given us? Here's the other thing I want you to get before we, um, before we, we uh, go forward. So remember, first, God is not opposed to, opposed to wealth and prospering his people. He's the same God who promises land of milk and honey and, and all that to those who fear and obey him. But secondly, we've looked at Proverbs over the past several weeks, uh, and really since the beginning, as two paths. You're probably tired of me hearing, hearing me say this by now. But many of you have told me this is helpful in reading Proverbs, knowing that there is one path to life that is, that is epitomized by Lady Wisdom. And in it is righteousness and wisdom and prudence and diligence and all of these good things. It is a tree with many branches. The other path is the path to death, epitomized by Lady Folly. It is obsessed with self, thinking of ourselves highly. It is marked by wickedness and foolishness. But here's what's interesting about this topic. So far, we've looked at here's the one path, here's the other. In this one, there are rich and poor on both paths. So this is not the either or. This is not the socialist gospel that all the uh, rich people are on the path to hell. And it's not some prosperity gospel that the, the, uh, the poor people are on the path to hell. There are rich and poor on both paths. But here's the real question. On which path do you find true wealth? On which path does wealth exist? Real wealth, lasting wealth. And so uh, we're going to rely a lot on Jesus today, uh, as we should every day. So if you, amen. Uh, and in your Bibles, we're going to be going through Proverbs. Those will not be up on the screen. We're also going to spend a lot of time in the Gospels. So if you've got two Bibles and, or two hands, keep one in Proverbs and one in the Gospels. Um, and we're also going to rely on Charles Spurgeon a lot. Uh, because he's got a lot of great things to say about wealth. It's like a great Baptist t-shirt, Jesus and Spurgeon. Um, Jesus in very big font and Spurgeon very small at the bottom. But we will start appropriately with Jesus. Uh, Mark, or yeah, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Where Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves, this will come in later, treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This contrast, Jesus recognizes and teaches that there is treasures on earth and there are treasures in heaven. Know its proper place. Don't store up or find your hope in the treasures that are on earth and that will pass away with the earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I want to get at your heart because Jesus wants to get at your heart. You can tell a lot about someone's heart by where they find their treasure. All right, so keep that in mind. It's going to be kind of a lens through which we see the rest of this. Then building on that lens... Back in Proverbs, our first passage we're going to look at is chapter 3. Now, we covered this earlier, uh, but I want to look at it for reference. Chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Notice this kind of causal relationship here. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. There's, the goal is not the filled barns, and the bursting vats. The goal is honor the Lord. 
Honor the Lord, and these things will come also. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the other things, he'll give you that too. Remember when Solomon could ask God for anything. He asked for wisdom. God said, because you asked for wisdom, I'll give you wisdom and what you didn't ask for. I'll give you wealth and riches beyond anything anyone will ever see. But wisdom in the fear of the Lord is above all else. Down to verse 13, chapter 3. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, and those who hold fast are called blessed. When we talk about blessing, true blessing, the blessing that lasts is the wisdom of God because it leads us to Christ. All right, let's pray, and then we're going to begin our study beginning in chapter 10. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning You are the Lord over all creation. You own the cattle on a thousand hills, i.e. everything. Help us to be good stewards. Because what you have given, you can take away at any moment. Help us to be people who store up treasure for eternity. And hold loosely our temporary treasure. Lord, may our lives what we do, what we say, what you've given us, may they all be a sweet offering to you. May our hearts be undivided in our worship and devotion to you. Because if we are indeed in Christ, we are heirs of all things. We praise you most importantly for Christ and his righteousness, and his goodness that even makes it possible to store up eternal riches. And the seal and guarantee of that inheritance, your spirit which you sent to us. May your spirit open our minds to understand your text. May your word divide our heart and lead us bare before you. May anything that holds tightly to us any of our dependence on our earthly wealth, may you break that hold of it. That we would keep with open hands everything that you've given us. Knowing that you can multiply it or you can remove it. And either way, we'll say blessed be the name of the Lord. Because we trust you. And Lord, I just ask for anyone here this morning who does not know you or who is trusting in their riches May you show them the futility of holding on to that which will not last. Show them the emptiness of earthly wealth and riches. And may you give us comfort and contentment in you in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at money and we look at wealth and things like that in Proverbs, remember that these are general principles. These are not absolute promises. They will be true most of the time, but if you read Proverbs as if they are direct commands and they will always come true, you're going to be a bit confused. So a lot of times, Proverbs is going to give direction, but mostly it's going to give commentary on things that happen in the world and things that can happen in our lives and gives us wise principles from which to discern when we have to make decisions. So uh, last week, we're, be- we're back in chapter 10. Last week, we dealt with laziness. So there's a direct connection here. Verse 4 of chapter 10, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And so we looked at uh, laziness, sluggardness versus diligence. And so uh, work ethic definitely ties right into wealth. So the first proverb we're going to look at is chapter 10, verse 2. And as we have, because I'm choosing to cover more verses than less, we're going to move pretty quickly through these. Um, And so make note of them. They're in your your, uh, notes. 
I want you to go back and study during, during the week, but I want you to get, get an idea of what the Bible says about wealth. So beginning in verse 2. Now remember we said a few weeks ago, verse 1, this is the thesis of the second half of the book. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 9, are all of these Hebrew poems laying out the, the uh, two paths, the two calls. Now, as the father and the mother send the sons out into the world, these two women are going to be calling. Let me give you some examples of what the call of Lady Wisdom and the call of Lady Folly is going to look like. And you've got the two paths. The wise son who makes a father glad and the foolish son who's a sorrow to his mother. The very next verse, what is the first thing that young men think about when they leave home? How am I going to earn a living? Where am I going to make money? How am I going to eat? And maybe if I'm going to get married, I should probably think about how she's going to eat too. So first thing that the father says here is, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. So what is this saying? It's kind of a play on words here. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Well, wait a second. He just gained treasures. Isn't that a profit? Well, temporarily, yes. But uh, I think chapter 11, verse 4 expands on this. So because these are parallels, I'm going to take it out of order. Everything else will be in order. But look at chapter 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit on the day of wrath. Notice, it's almost an exact parallel, but righteousness delivers from death. Riches do not profit. When do they profit? Remember, there are earthly riches and there are heavenly riches. Those earthly riches profit for a while, but not into eternity. On the day of wrath, they mean nothing. Anything you do apart from the Lord is counted as nothing. We just studied that in Philippians. Paul says, I counted all as loss. I gained everything a Jew could gain, and it's nothing because now I have Christ. Anything you think you gain in this world, you come before God, there is a day of wrath. So right up front, we've got to talk about this. There is a day of wrath. Everything that you think you have accounted for yourself in your selfish pursuits right now, they mean nothing when you stand before God. Absolutely nothing. But you know what means something when you stand before God? Righteousness. Your wealth cannot save you, but your righteousness can. Well, hold up. Isaiah tells us our righteousness is as filthy rags. This, the writer of Proverbs here says, but righteousness delivers from death. How can we, unrighteous sinners, be delivered from death? Because if it's not our earthly wages, if it's not our earthly good, how can anyone be saved? So we don't have to go far to get to the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It is the good news because we've got a sin problem and it's good news because we've got a righteousness problem. Our sin problem is that we're born into sin and we deserve to die. Even if Jesus pays for our sin, we still have nothing to offer. But until he gives us his righteousness, until he takes his sin upon himself, our sin upon himself, and places his righteousness upon us, we have nothing with which to deliver us from death. Even if you are sinless, you still have nothing to give before God. But if the righteous one himself, the only one who's truly righteous, says, I will stand in your place, the righteousness of God manifested goes to the cross on your behalf and rises again with your sins put to death and says, I will credit my righteousness to your account, that saves you from death. And that is the good news of the gospel because it solves our sin problem and our righteousness problem. Next verse, verse 15 of chapter 10. Uh, these are all kind of be interconnected, build on one another, I guess. Verse 15, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. All right, here's where the nuance comes in. Because we just talked about, well, the riches, they don't help. They're not good for anything. That's not what it says. Riches won't help you on the day of wrath, but they will help you on most other days. The man's, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. Wealth does offer some protection in this world. Riches profit for a time. It was the same in their day as in ours. Your, the, the riches of the rich protect them. 
often. And the poor are without recourse, especially in the Old Testament. The rich, can, rich men can build themselves housed with walls and have armed security guard, and the poor are left to fend for themselves. But that city is not an eternal city. That wealth is not eternal wealth. Jesus gives us a very different picture. Matthew 5, 3, the first of the Beatitudes. Most of you are familiar with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is better to be poor than trust in your wealth. Who are the poor in spirit? They're the ones that know that their account is bankrupt on their own. They're the ones that know that they are wretched and that they need a savior. They're the ones who are humble enough to say, I have nothing on my own, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That is the poor in spirit. It is much better to be poor in spirit than have all the wealth in the world and think that that can save you. Amen. And so we have to put these things in their right order. We, don't, we understand that there are riches in the temporal sphere here and now on this earth and riches in the eternal sphere. Don't conflate the two. Don't try to apply monopoly money to your water bill. It won't work. Don't try to apply worldly wealth to eternal an eternal account. You're dealing with two different currencies for two different worlds. Spurgeon's helpful here. He says, never ruin your soul for the sake of money. It is like drowning yourself in a well to get a drink of water. Better to walk barefoot than to ride in a carriage to hell. Carriage doesn't sound fancy to you guys, but that was a limo. Better to walk barefoot than ride in a limo to hell. Do never ruin your soul for the sake of money. All right, let's move on. There'll be more of that. Chapter 10, verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. What are true riches? It is communion and blessing from the Lord. You are rich if you know the Lord. You are rich if you have the peace that passes understanding. You are rich if he cares for your every need. You are rich if you can go to him in prayer. You are rich if you have the righteousness of Christ. No one can take that away. If you are in Christ, you are a co-heir with him of all things, all authority. All of the world has been given to him and we share in that. And we'll look at those blessings later. And he, the Lord, adds no sorrow with it. But you're like, well, I am in the Lord, but I do feel sorrow. The only sorrow we feel is from the effect of sin. The Lord places no sorrow upon us. It is only because we live in a sinful world and we are sinful people. But the blessings of the Lord, they are pure and they are undefiled. And that is true wealth. Next, chapter seven, verse, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 7. Tied to what we looked at earlier, when the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. So it's kind of connect these ideas. If your hope is in your wealth, and you have no righteousness to offer God when you die, what hope do you really have? What hope is that? When the wicked dies, his hope will perish. And the expectation of wealth perishes too. Should go without saying, but if you're consumed with earning money, when you die, that's gone. You can't earn money anymore. And you could die at any moment. This is what the father's telling the son here in Proverbs. Do you think that that's going to secure you? Do you think that that's going to satisfy you? It could be gone at any moment. Hearses don't pull trailers. You can't bring it with you. Probably the most famous teaching of Jesus on this is the rich young ruler. And so let's look at him in Luke 18. Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. I want you to see the parallels here. Jesus is taking the wisdom and the principles of Proverbs, and he, is and he is applying them to the soul. 
And the ruler asked him, good teacher, this is Luke 18, verse 18, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking a good question. What must I do to be saved? His perspective is in the right place, seemingly. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is already under, um, he's kind of uh, loosening the foundation he's built for himself. Because he, by his answers, sees himself as good. Good teacher, I'm a good student, let's make sure we're on the same page here. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Here's the standard of goodness. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Apparently he wasn't there for the Sermon on the Mount. Because any of these done in his heart, he has broken them. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. All right, you may have all these external markings of goodness, but there's one thing you lack. There is a piece of you that is not good. Even if I'll grant you all these other things, a part of you is still holding on to death. And what is it? See all that you have and distribute it to the poor. This is key here. And you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus is essentially saying, you've got treasure on earth, but you don't have treasure in heaven. How do we get treasure in heaven? Make sure that an anchor is not around our heart on earth. You can't have treasure on earth that you love and you won't get rid of and have treasure in heaven. As he will go on to say, you can't serve two masters. We'll look at that later on. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Here it is. If you have eternal perspective, if you want eternal riches, you must leave it all behind and follow me. This is the mark of eternal life. No earthly attachments above me and your life is one of following me. This is eternal life. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So I think most people, when you hear this for the first time, like, well, that's impossible. And so the disciples' response is pretty understandable. Then who can be saved? So Jesus is using hyperbole here, but he's, it's actually true. He's making a point. And so why is it so, before we go on, why is it so difficult for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God? Because let's be honest, if you're broke, you don't really care. Leave all you have behind and follow me. Sure, my old couch and my, and my thrift store clothes, absolutely. Done. What else? But if you're rich, oh, my cars and my house and my TV and my IRA and everything else that I find security in, that's a camel going through the eye of a needle. It is impossible. In our flesh, none of us would ever do that. None of us would ever give it all up and, and, and follow Christ. And that's why Jesus says what is impossible with man is possible only with God. Unless the Lord is working in your heart and has showed you the futility of your stuff, you're going to walk away sad like that man. And so we must ask ourselves, could we give all of our things away if Christ asked us to? Could we? He hasn't asked everyone to, but if he did, how long would you hesitate? Because your attitude toward your wealth is a direct indicator of your allegiance to Christ. Your attitude toward your wealth is a direct indication of your allegiance to Christ. Would you be sad like this man or would you, get, or would you say, I get to follow Jesus, I don't care. All right, let's move on. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 18. The wicked earns deceptive wages. Remember, I told you to keep your fing one finger in each place. You're going to need them. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Let's define deceptive. False. The wicked earns false wages, 
It seems like the wicked benefit. But only for a time. It's kind of like steroids are false muscles. You look strong, uh, but there's some crazy chemical stuff going on in your body, and it's not going to last. You're going to do more damage to yourself. That's why these wages are deceptive. Why are they deceptive? Because they may profit for a time, but the more you get, the more you want, and the more opportunity for idolatry increases, and more opportunity for evil. It can never last. But the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. You reap what you sow. If you're planting seeds of selfishness and wickedness, that's what's going to spring up. That's going to be your harvest. But if your investment, if your planting is in righteousness for treasures in heaven that will not pass away, that's real treasure. That is a real reward. Do you want treasures with Christ in heaven that never pass away? Or do you want to hold on to what you've got here just hoping that you live past 80? That's kind of what's going on here. Continuing on, there's great application in verse 24 of chapter 11. This, uh, these three verses, 24, 25, and 26, all promote generosity. So think about it. If your true wealth is in Christ... If your true wealth is his righteousness, it lasts forever. Your inheritance is in heaven. How firmly do you hold on to stuff here? If you said Christ, if you are told Christ has made me rich and you believe that, how tightly do you hold on to your stuff? And by extension, how tightly we hold on to our stuff really tells how much we trust Christ for eternal riches. Here's a great test to see how dependent on your stuff you are. Take out your wallet, hand the person next to you $20, or you kids cash out the person next to you $20. (laughs) Seriously, don't do it, but you can. But did that make you a little uncomfortable? When you think about giving away your car, your TV, the Lord may call you to it, he may not. But would you be willing to? Or do you hold tightly onto your stuff? Verse 24, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. God loves a cheerful and generous giver. And I know some of you, not all of you, some of you are generous givers and you have it easier. I know it's some of you because I'm not one of you. This is not easy for me. My wife is nodding over here. Um, not that I love my stuff, but I don't let go of it so easily. My first thought isn't just to give the best that I have. I'm like, ah, I've got leftovers in the fridge for you guys. But the generous, I like leftovers too. Um, but the generous giver has it easier. But those of us who hold on to our stuff and we get stressed about every little thing we have, how free are we? We become in, in bondage to things that we don't realizing are, are, are giving us comfort and, and uh, predictability. This is one thing with people and possessions is another thing entirely with God. We can be stingy toward others, but what does it say about our allegiance to our Lord if we're stingy? We should be joyful in giving and tithing. We should be joyful in meeting the needs of brothers and sisters. Because our God has met all of our needs. I love what Spurgeon says here. He that gives God his heart will not soon deny him his money. He that gives God his heart will not soon deny him his money. Giving to God is no loss. It is putting your money in the best bank. That is real interest. That is real growth. Going on, verse 25, whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. How true is this? Think about it. Have you ever blessed and encouraged someone else and felt cheated? Have you ever been like, you know what, I'm going to do this for them, and it was a complete waste of time? I hope not. No, right? The Lord has built this into us. There is a joy we get in a 
being able to serve others, but how often do we hold so tightly onto what we need? We're so uh, myopic. We're so busy staring at our own belly button that we don't see the needs of others. But when we do, you're like, that was easier than I thought. And the one who does, those who pour out freely of their time, their talents, their, their, their treasures, they will be watered themselves. Think about it. How much has the Lord taught you by blessing others? How much has the Lord taught you by giving away your stuff or by tithing? How many of us in here have seen the Lord's faithfulness again and again and again by being consistent in tithing? But those first couple times, it's like trying to pull candy away from a toddler. Like, you do not want to let go. What am I going to do without this 10%? The Lord's like, I own it all. What are you going to do without my blessing in your life? I like what John Bunyan says here. Great writer and poet. He says, there was a man, and some did count him mad, crazy. The more he gave away, the more he had. This is the Christian life. People may think we're crazy, but this is real riches because you are not a slave to your stuff. Verse 26. Whoever brings, uh, oh yeah, verse 26, the people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Proverbs does not look favorably on the stingy. We'll have a few more verses on that next week. But in an agrarian culture, holding back grain means somebody doesn't eat. Somebody may die. And so whoever, um, the people curse you if you hold back grain. In those days, you could... You could lead to the demise of others because you want to hold back what you have. But a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Notice here. Selling is not a bad thing. The one who sells and presumably makes a profit is a blessing to others. Profit and wealth is not evil. But using it at the expense of others and to selfishly oppress others to build yourself up, that is evil. The Bible is not against possessions, against wealth, against profit. It is against the heart that loves money more than anything and doesn't care for how your dealings with money affect others, especially when it comes to life or death. Rarely do we make financial decisions that come to life or death. But in this case, if you hold back grain, it, come, it may come to life or death, Best example is Joseph in Egypt. God gives Joseph the wisdom and the foresight to know that there's a famine coming. And Joseph, being obedient to God and being second to Pharaoh, says, hey, there's a famine coming. We're going to have seven uh, plenty years and seven lean years. Let's buy up all the land at a premium. Let's, let's um, plant fields everywhere. And let's store up the grain because the next seven years are going to be tough. And he does. And he sells it. And people live. And through it, God brought Israel, his father Jacob, into Egypt along with his brothers, preserving the line that leads to Christ. And through his faithfulness and God's provision, Israel is blessed, Joseph is blessed, and Egypt is blessed. By not holding back grain, all of the surrounding regions were fed because of God's wisdom and Joseph's discernment in his distribution of grain. All right, let's move on. Verse 28, same chapter. We won't have as many in each chapter. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. That's a guarantee. That, that, that one's a promise. But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Quickly, whoever trusts in riches will fall. What do you trust in? Really. You don't have to say it out loud, but examine your heart. If you take a moment, what do you trust in? What, if you were to let go of, makes you really uncomfortable? There's another question. How long has money satisfied you? Money is satisfying just as long as you spend it, and then you need more, and then you rinse, wash, repeat. It can't satisfy. It will always run out. It will always let us down. 
Riches are a bridge made of straw. It may work once or twice, but when it rains, it's not going to last. It's not, it's not a foundation you can be built on. You will fall. It will fail you, guaranteed, because it's not meant to last. It's a temporary tool. It's a throwaway. It's a plastic cup. Drink from it once, maybe twice, and then throw it away. It's not something that is meant to last. But the righteous, the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Think about it. What does a green leaf need to flourish? Sun, water, nutrients. Who provides those? The Lord. The righteous are like a green leaf. Everything we need, the Lord will provide. Trust him, honor him, and you will flourish in his hand like a bright green leaf. And as Jesus told us, how much more valuable are you than the lilies of the field? Who are more beautiful than all the array of Solomon in his splendor. All right, chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 7. The rest of these I'm going to move a little more quickly on. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Fortune cookies eat your heart out. This is great wisdom here. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. There's an, there's an old and misguided saying, fake it till you make it. We are a country of fakers. How many people drive cars they can't afford, live in houses they can't afford, dress in ways they can't afford just to make everybody else think that they've made it? How many of us have been caught up in that? Some of you don't care, and I applaud you, but many of us have cared. How many people are so busy pretending that they are burdened and saddled with debt? I don't need this, but everyone else thinks this way about me. So I'm going to put it on the card. I'm going to mortgage my future so that I can look like I'm rich now. Or maybe they're actually rich, but miserable. They might be rich with the things of this world, but they are poor in eternity. If riches made happy, a celebrity would never commit suicide. We know that's not the case. But there's another who pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. I think of Sam Walton, creative Walmart, the richest family in America. A billionaire, a hundred times over, drove the same 1979 stock F-150 truck his, his whole adult life. Looked like he could be sitting down by the water in, in Sanford, and you may want to share the gospel with him. A billionaire. He pretends to be poor, yet is very rich. This is how we as Christians should be. Not like the billionaire, but we have eternal riches, and yet we can live modestly. And so think about this. Do you yourself live above or below your means? If you live above your means, meaning I make X amount, but I spend above that, you're overextended, you really have nothing. If your net worth is negative, you have no wealth. All your stuff may say differently, but the bottom line says something com completely otherwise. Or do you live modestly, below your income, but have great wealth? Christian, our identity is not in our bank account. You don't need stuff or cars or things to make other people happy. If you have those people in your life, get rid of them. If they need these things for, for them to be happy, you don't need them. I love what Spurgeon says here. This is beautiful. Like, I, um, I want this on a t-shirt. Never stretch your legs further than your blanket will reach, or you, 
or you will soon be cold. That's what it means to live above your means. You're six foot tall with a five foot blanket. Uh, you're, either your head or your feet are going to be cold. He goes on to say that a fool may make money, but it needs a wise man to spend it. Any fool can make money, but only a wise man can keep it. Verse 8, same chapter. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. Here's just an observation of the day. If you're rich, you've got the money to pay back the kidnappers who, who take you and want a ransom for your life. But on the other side, if you're poor, you don't have that problem because you have nothing the kidnappers want. So, you know, it could, it could go either way. Do you want to be wealthy enough to pay off kidnappers or not wealthy enough for you to be on the kidnappers' radar? Uh, renowned, as renowned secular philosopher Christopher Wallace said, Mo money, mo problems. Um, <laughs> verse 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. This is a great principle building on work ethic from last week. If you rush and you cut corners, you won't appreciate your wealth and you won't keep your wealth because you will always be flustered, and you will always be impatient. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. But the one with a good work ethic, day after day, week after week, year after year, they will, they will appreciate and increase it. Spurgeon says this, diligence is the mother of good luck. I love that. No such thing as good work, good, good luck. If you are diligent and a hard worker, it just seems like you're lucky. He says, slow and steady is better than fast and flimsy. Amen. Brick by brick, a house is built. So it is with wealth. You can't throw up a house all at once. If you think you can microwave wealth, it will, you will, it will lose it just as quickly. Here's a great principle for us. Build your bank account like you build a house. One brick, one board at a time. And you will appreciate every one of them. Anyone ever built anything with their own hands, fixed anything with their own hands? You appreciate it so much more than if you just pay someone else to come in and do it. Here's the other thing. It is the same exact way for our Christian life. How do we grow in Christ? Brick by brick. Little by little. Day after day. Be in his word today. Be in prayer today. Be faithful today. We are so impatient, and we're, such in a, we're in such a quick culture. Little by little, day after day, it will increase, whether wealth or spiritual wealth. Verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. This is how wise, selfless men care for and provide for his family. He's not just thinking about himself. He's thinking about the generations. He considers passing on wealth to his children and his grandchildren. But the sinner's wealth, it's laid up for the righteous. How often does the Lord use sinful people in unrighteous means to bless his people? Going back to our example from earlier. Here's the prime example. You've got Joseph in Egypt. The greatest nation and, and uh, dynasty of the world in that time. And what does God do? He sends Israel out with their gold. He brings Joseph in, prospers them, humbles them, and then loots them for the blessing of his people. He's been doing it throughout history and he'll continue to do it. But I want us to think about something with this idea of inheritance. Now, this is kind of lost on us because it's not practiced as it used to be, but in the agrarian culture, in those days, your inheritance was everything. Because if your father squandered what he had, there's no banks to get a loan. There's no, there, there's no handouts and welfare programs. You were going to be poor and destitute. The man who didn't provide an inheritance for his children was often condemning them to death. 
But if your father was good, better yet, if your grandfather or your great-grandfather was wise and he was good, you had a lot of hope and you were still provided for. But as Jesus said earlier, there's only one who is good. And what did our good God do by sending his good son? What do we see in almost every epistle? He gives to his people an inheritance. Let's look at Titus chapter 3. Also, we could go to Galatians chapter 3, Romans chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 3, but we're just going to go to Titus. It's really hard narrowing these down, so I just had to pick one. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. Here's that, that, that goodness now. The good man leaves an inheritance for his children and his children's children. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, this is a divine attribution. God, he's our Savior. He appeared. means we couldn't see him before. Now we could see him. He saved us. Became flesh, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Here's our righteousness problem, but according to his own mercy. How do, we, how do we remove our sin problem? By the mercy of God through the washing of regeneration. By the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. This is real wealth. You want to know what riches are? God pours eternity into the hearts of his people. That is wealth. God pours his spirit out on us who will preserve us forever and guarantee our inheritance. We'll look at that later in Ephesians. So that being justified, declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know what's better than an inheritance for your children and your grandchildren? An inheritance for eternal life. That is real hope. Remember the wicked man who dies and his hope vanishes with him. We have hope. Why? Because our hope does not fade. Our hope is an eternal treasure. Our hope is an inheritance that is sealed with us in Christ by his spirit through the mercy of God. That is a good father who provides for his children. And if you are in Christ, that inheritance is yours. Let's go back to Proverbs. We'll look at that a little bit more. Before we wrap up, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 20. The poor is disliked by even his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. So this is not defending or promoting. It's just observing a fact of life. Rich people have more friends. But let's ask ourselves a question. If people surround you for what you have and what you can give them, how good of friends are they really? And if you are poor and you have friends, you probably have true friends because they're not with you for what you can offer them. So growing up, I loved to go to the boys down the street house, uh, three or four houses down. I loved to go over there. Not because they were nice or fun. They were spoiled brats, but they had all the best toys. If they didn't have every Star Wars playset and action figure, I would not go. But they did, so we became friends. But our friendship didn't last because I was only with them for the toys. <laughs> so if you think, why is that so funny? I don't know. Um, all right. So maybe some of you are thinking, well, if I said more money, I might have more friends. Well, Jesus says not so fast. Look at Luke chapter 6. You don't want those kind of friends. You don't want me as your friend. <laughs> Luke chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. Luke 6, 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You love your riches, great. This is as good as it gets for you. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. You're trusting in yourself. You think your, wealth, your, your riches are going to save you on the day of wrath. You're soon going to be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you. Rich people get a lot of compliments. Rich people get a lot of encouragement. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did 
the prophets. Now, Christians encourage one another, absolutely. But if everybody loves you, you're probably buying your friends. That's what Jesus is saying here. But I think it's important for us to look at our hearts here. How easy is it for us to envy? How often do we compare ourselves to others? How often do we be like, man, I wish I had what that rich person has? Do you really? Think about it. The person that you've envied in the past, you may want their stuff, but do you want their life and their problems too? Do you want their messed up marriage and their disobedient kids? You may want all the stuff that they have on the outside, but you peel back the curtain. Do you really want that? That's what covetousness does to us. We look at what others have and think that that's going to make us happy. So ladies, if you struggle with that, there's a plug for the women's study after service today. Uh, Verse 24 of chapter 14. Even if you don't struggle with it, go anyway. Verse 24, the crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. This is true wealth. Wisdom itself is its own reward. As we saw earlier, seek after it more than silver and gold, for it will last. It is honor with God and man, and it is long life. Wisdom and the fear of the Lord, it is a tree of righteousness that goes on into eternity. But this weird Hebrew sentence, the folly of fools brings folly. If you put this into a mathematical equation, folly times folly equals folly. Okay, but what does that mean? It essentially means that anything gained apart from fear of the Lord, it's foolishness. It's nothing. Even if you increase it, it's only going to increase your selfishness, your, your, your idolatry, and it's only going to bring you further away from the Lord. You, you can plant this, all the seeds you want. You can have the biggest field of foolishness in the world, and it's still foolishness. Don't multiply your foolishness. Seek wisdom. That is true wealth. Last one, verse uh, 6 of chapter 15. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. First half of this verse, in the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if his righteousness is applied to you, your house is full of treasure. And I'm not talking about the stupid stuff you have in the glass cabinet. I want you to see how rich you are. Matthew 13, 44. Because some of you don't, I don't feel very rich. But I don't think we spend enough time praising God for and reflecting on what we have. Here's how Jesus values the kingdom of God. One verse, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes out and sells all that he has and buys the field. How valuable is entrance into the kingdom of heaven? How valuable is eternal life? Sell everything. Everything. I will give it all for a treasure that no one can put a value on. And you say, okay, that sounds like something off in the distance. What is that treasure? Let's turn to Ephesians 1. If you are in Christ, if he has died for you, if your sins have been given to him and his righteousness has been given to you, if your faith is in him and you are sealed by his Holy Spirit, what do you have? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read all of this, um, and then we're going to end in Luke 16. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Remember everything we talked about. God has blessed us. Now, this is his people to the saints, verse 1. This is not to everyone. If you are apart from Christ, you're broke. But good news is you can turn to Christ. But if you are in Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place is not earthly. You can have nothing here and be more wealthy than Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and everybody else put together. Why? What is the wealth? Notice, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Election. God saw through history 
knew you, knew your sin, loved you anyway, and said, that one's mine. He chose us before the foundation of the world. That, okay, we've got election, that we should be holy, we're set apart for him, we're, we're blameless, we're given righteousness before him. We're given the love of God, if that weren't enough. He also predestined us for adoption. He brought us into his family. Not just as he says, you are righteous in a courtroom, but you get to sit at my table. You get, an, you get an inheritance as my child through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, God worked all of redemptive history out to save a people for his son. To the praise of his glorious grace. There's three of those. This is the first one. God does it all for our good and to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God is saying, you are in my son. I'm going to love you like my son. I'm going to bless you like my son. He is my beloved, and in him, you are my beloved too. In him, we have redemption. We've been bought back from our sin through his blood. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. That is a rich word. In all wisdom and insight, we've been given the mind of Christ, making known to us the mystery of his will. He's, he's unfolded eternal mysteries and opened them up to us that we might understand we've been brought into the family of God, that even us Gentiles could have an inheritance according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All the stuff you're storing up now, all the stuff you're storing up in, in eternity, it is all given to us in Christ because he owns all things. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. This inheritance so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Number two, in him you also, not just the apostles in the first generation, but everyone after that, you also. We're not the initial recipients of this letter, but it is just as true to us who are in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's better that I go so that my spirit comes. Because he's going to convict you of your sin. He's going to draw you to me. He's going to remind you of my word, and he's going to seal you for that inheritance forever. That is rich. God himself plans to, accomplishes to, and, and uh, perfects us for salvation. This spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance un until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is the riches that are in the house of the righteous. All right, here's our closing text, uh, Luke 16, 10 through 13. And I'll be, I'll be brief, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Luke 16, after Jesus tells us about the unrighteous manager, the dishonest manager, not unrighteous, the dishonest manager, uh, go back and read the first nine verses. Uh, but he says something interesting. He says, and, and I tell you, this is uh, Luke 16, 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, meaning earthly wealth, so that when it fails, you may receive, uh, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Essentially, this unrighteous wealth, earthly wealth, you use now, use it, be good stewards of it, leverage it for eternal treasure. Don't hold on to it. This is, this is tokens where you can get to go and go buy better stuff. Here's the closing challenge. Jesus says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Have you been faithful in whatever the Lord has given you? I don't care if it's little or much. Have you been faithful? Do you know that what you've been given is from the Lord? And he has entrusted it to you. You are a manager of God's stuff. He gave you your abilities. He gave you your treasures. He gave you your, your, your family. He gave you your knowledge. Are you an honest manager and a good steward or a dishonest manager? We always want more than what we have now. But what have we done with what we have now? Have we been faithful what we have now? God, give me more. I want more. What have you done with what I've given you already? 
You want more? How have you done with the little that I've given you? If then you have not been faithful, he goes on in verse 11, in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Basically, what I've given you on earth, that's a proving ground for what you're going to do with eternal treasure. You can't keep money straight. How can I trust you with something of eternal value? But how often do we put money above spiritual things and eternal things? And he ends here. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, meaning you've been steward of what the living God has given you, who will give you that which is your own? Remember what Jesus said. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We actually get to possess things that carry on for eternity. But if we're not faithful what God has given us, what eternal reward will we have? Here's what I need you to hear. If you're in Christ, you all get an eternal reward. And if it's a little tiny kid savings account, it's going to be glorious. But there is treasure laid up in heaven. Where are you storing your treasure? Finally, he says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot love your money and be devoted to your God at the same time. You must choose one. Who are you serving? Because if you are in Christ, you are already rich, and this should be a no-brainer. So I want you to consider that as we prepare to approach the table. If you are in Christ, this table is a visible reminder of the riches that we have in Christ. His price paid for us. His righteousness on our account. Our sins laid before him. Brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on heavenly things. I'll give you a few moments to go before the Lord. Prepare your hearts and minds. uh, And then I will lead us to the table. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, thank you for your time and your word and your time with your people. We praise you that we can come together in the name of Jesus Christ, that we have all riches because of him. Lord, forgive us when we are so short-sighted. We love our stuff more than we love you. Lord, may your body, your people approach this table joyfully and excited that we are in Christ, looking forward to the day when we see him again and we have the fullness of our riches, which is Christ. And in him is the election and the adoption and the forgiveness and the redemption and the mercy and the grace and the inheritance and the holiness and the blamelessness and everything that we have in him. It is our union with Christ which we celebrate and which brings us to this table. And it is in his name that I pray. Amen.